Well, hello there, and welcome to The Pursuit of Dadliness. I'm your host, Patrick Wyman. Thanks so much for joining me today. Here's a canonical dad event for you. If there is a basketball hoop and a ball or two and a group of dads standing around, they will sooner or later be shooting. Doesn't matter if it's a tiny kid's hoop, an eight-footer for little guys, or a full-size court. If the opportunity is there, the dads will be shooting. They cannot resist. Next time these conditions are met, just watch. I guarantee you that this is going to happen. Now, basketball is a pretty great sport in general. It is my favorite to watch, hands down. It's also a pretty great dad sport. Games are shorter than football. There's always action happening. Games are on every night. And because there are a bunch of games in a season, you can miss a ton of them and still get the flow of things. It's also a sport that you can genuinely improve at as you age. You're not going to jump any higher or run any faster, probably, but that shooting stroke, buddy, that can always get better no matter how old you are. Today's guest is one of my very favorite people working in basketball media. Ben Golliver is the national NBA writer for the Washington Post and co-host of the greatest of all talk NBA podcast. He also wrote a book, Bubble Ball, Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season, on the wild happenings in the NBA bubble back in 2020. He got his start covering the Portland Trailblazers, my favorite team, but I promise that I will try to keep the Blazers conversation to a reasonable but not non-existent level. Ben, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure, and, and thanks for that very generous intro. While you are not technically a dad yourself, you do have a very strongly dad-coded interest in national parks. How many national parks have you been to? You know, I have a lot of dad tendencies, I would say. Actually, I get accused of that all the time. My, my podcast co-host actually calls me Grandpa Gulliver, so that, that shows you how deep I am. Not even just dad, you know, I'm the, the grandfather. Uh, you know, I, I love the national parks. I've probably been to at least 30 of them uh, across the country um, and a few in Canada as well. It's just a great way to unwind after being in, like, really loud, really packed, really intense um, NBA playoff environments. There's nothing better than just, like, chasing elk in the absolute middle of nowhere and hopefully you get to hear a bugle or something like that so that's one of my hobbies but you know i love legos i feel like you know and, and i'm always exchanging like facetime videos with my friends children they're showing me their new lego sets i'm showing them what i've got uh, you know i love basketball cards you know i've been sending off some basketball cards to some of my friends uh, children as well so i maybe i'm uncle ben you know i don't know if i'm a, a pure dad but i'll take honorary uncle ben how's that I think that works pretty well. We have a phrase for that that was coined very early on in this show's run, which is a cultural but non-practicing dad. And yes. I think I think that fits very well. You've got that. You've also got the related but slightly different species of uncle energy. So, you know, somewhere in there, there is a place for you. I'm just saying, in the culture, we've got you. Well, I think that's kind of natural for older brothers. I'm the oldest of uh, three siblings. And when I was growing up, even when I was like in elementary school and middle school, I was coaching my siblings soccer teams. It's a real dad energy when you're kind of pacing the sideline, uh, you know, trying to make sure we hold on to a, a narrow victory, you know, that kind of stuff. So that I kind of got raised with dad energy, frankly. But when you're watching uh, NBA basketball, I do think that there's, you know, a certain role for that, right? I mean, the league is incredibly young right now. You're seeing some of the biggest stars kind of have wayward paths, whether it's Zion Williamson or John ja Morant. And I think sometimes when you just want to see these guys fulfill their potential and like just keep on the right track, it brings out the dad in all of us, doesn't it? It's like, God, we just want to sit, we want to sit Zion down and say, hey man, like just stick to the off-season regimen, you know, keep yourself in shape. You never know what might happen. Hey, John ja Morant, you don't need to go on Instagram. There's, there's no benefit to that, you know, just you know, focus on the gym, right? And, uh, you know, I, I think that's just part of, I think, growing older a little bit 
bit too. You know, I'm, I'm catching up here pretty close on 40. And uh, it's just very natural when you're covering a sport where a lot of the very best players are between the ages of 18 and 25. Okay, so that hit me so hard because I've been thinking through that tendency over the past few years where I'm like, I would refer to it as put on a jacket, it's cold outside energy. A few years back, I was walking in Charleston and it was a Friday night and there were all of these college students out and there was this girl walking in front of us who was probably 18 or 19 years old. She was telling her friend, my mom was on the phone with me earlier and she's like, you should put a jacket on. It's cold when you go out. You don't want to you don't want to catch a cold. She's like, I don't know. I don't need to put a jacket on. And I'm walking behind her and I'm thinking, put the jacket on. It's 40 degrees. It's freezing out here. Your mother is right. Put the jacket on. And that's like, I'm trying not to like in my head, talk down to these incredibly talented, incredibly accomplished players. But it's also like, Ja, like you don't need the gun, man. You are not a gangster, especially in Memphis, which is probably the NBA city with the least amount of daylight between that part of the culture and basketball. Like you definitely don't need to be doing that. (laughs) Yeah, well, the other weird phenomenon that I've kind of discovered is I'm still covering guys who are pretty much my age, right? Like LeBron's almost the same age as I am. My first year covering the NBA was Kevin Durant's rookie season. So there's always kind of a bond there age-wise. And you feel like the music that they listen to and the rappers that they reference are, you know, things that, oh, I remember that from college. But now I've gotten to the point where not only are those guys still in the NBA, but now I'm doing stories about college players. Like take, for example, Caitlin Clark, the big star at Iowa. I did a story on her where I, I got to kind of embed with their program for about a week in uh, last January. It was incredible. But her parents are just about my age, right? Like oh they're a little God. bit they're a little bit older, but it's now to the point where like, you know, LeBron's got a son who's going to be in college, pretty much the same age as Caitlin Clark, right? So now I'm seeing it from two different generations. And Caitlin Clark, we, uh, her parents and I, we had dinner. We sat down uh, like at a steak dinner and they're quizzing me like, what do you think of Caitlin? And it's like, well, I mean, yeah. She's an incredible player, an incredible person. If I keep gushing, it might start to get a little bit awkward because you are her parents. You're the ones who are supposed to love her this much. Right? Like, so, it, you know, it, it's almost like you know, I'm giving them props for parenting. And it's you know something that I, I really don't know a lot about. So this weird cross-generational thing has definitely taken some adjusting, but I do think it gives you a, a different look at the entire sport and how you develop young talent, especially, you know, you can kind of get into the minds of the parents who you know, they, they're going through the same thing. Like they're getting well instant messenger at the same time we're getting it, right? They're getting, you know, iPhones the same time we're getting it. They're not so familiar with TikTok and some of these newer uh, social media platforms. They might be a little bit more concerned about that, whereas the younger kids are fully embracing it. And so you can understand all the different challenges that they're going through just trying to raise up somebody who's going to be basically a Fortune 500 brand, right? If she's not already. So um, those things have been, you know, fun to discover and, and see from a different perspective. And I think it's probably maybe a good thing that I don't have kids because the last thing you want to do is come home from a trip and it's like, well, I just met pretty much the greatest women's basketball player on the face (laughs) of the earth and then feel like your kids are, wait, do you you love me as much as you like her? Like what's going on here, dad? You don't want to get those those comparisons going. So maybe it's better for me to just stick to writing and uh, and maybe secondhand parenting and, and uncling when I can. So it's so funny that you mentioned that stuff because I was thinking about this a few years ago when Billie Eilish became big and I was like, why do I like her music so much? And then I realized that it was because I could hear the music her parents had played for her as a child Mm. in, in her music. And I feel like you can see that with young basketball players now who are being raised by people who came of age 
watching basketball in the 90s, you can see it in their moves. You can see it in the way that they approach things. You can see it in the kind of downstream of Kobe or MJ type of stuff that you see in young players now where you're like, oh, I understand where that comes from. I understand the kinds of influences that shape them. Like I see like I see that with New Portland Trailblazer, Scoot Henderson. When you watch him play, you can see what older people who coached him were telling him to do. And you can see oh, how totally. that reflects the game of the 90s and the early 2000s. Like you can see Allen Iverson in him. And it's like weird being old enough to have that perspective. Fun, but weird. Well, you know, I'm sure that's, you know, sort of like my dad, you know, he he went to college at Michigan State at the same time Magic Johnson was there. And he was telling me stories last week about all the tricks that they were doing to weasel their way to the top of the, the season ticket list so they could get the best <laughs> seats. And he said they were getting all these foreign grad students who didn't know what basketball even was. But because they were grad students, they had priority because uh, they had been there for so long. So they were getting those guys to stand in line and then paying them some extra cash to get the tickets off of them. It's just hilarious stories. Nowadays, those guys would be smart enough to sell those tickets on uh, StubHub for like 10 times face value, right? I mean, imagine going to college with Magic Johnson and seeing him play. So, um, you know, I, I do think, you know, he was always telling me about the guys from the 80s, the guys from the 70s, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Skyhook, you got to feed the big man in transition, all these rules that he learned from that previous generation that, uh, you know, that maybe wasn't being taught as much in, in the 90s and 2000s, kind of when we were, we were growing up. But to echo your point on Scoot, sort of like going back to Zion, back when he was in everybody's good graces, he first got to the NBA, he had a comment saying that his mom forced him to watch Michael Jordan game tape, not just highlights, because she wanted him to see Michael Jordan's intensity on defense and the importance of being a two-way player. And when Zion said that, you could just see all the sports writers between 35 and 45 years old simultaneously their eyes just lit up and they're like whoa not only does he study michael jordan but he understands that he's a two-way player this guy's going to be the next great he gets it you know and it's funny how those kinds of generational uh, touch points you know really resonate and whoever helped him come up with that story for the media a plus you know i mean and that all carry the day when you say something like that yeah that's that is absolute publicist gold like whatever his publicist was getting paid was not enough for that for that particular line. Oh, the Zion thing, man. Like I I want Zion to be so good, so bad because the talent is just insane. There's never been a player like him. Like I remember one of his first regular season games and they were playing the Jazz and he just bodied Rudy Gobert. Just absolutely embarrassed him any time that he was anywhere close to him. And I'm like, oh, this is just going to be the best player I've ever seen. And now, years later, everything that's happened, Charles Barkley telling him, if it tastes good, just spit it out. Like, that's the, <laughs> I mean, I just want Zion to be good so bad. Yeah, you know, we're in this kind of a weird lost generation with some of these NBA guys, right? Where, especially in their mid-20s, we haven't really gotten, especially the American successor, to the LeBron, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry generation. We're still sort of waiting for it. Obviously, Jokic, Embiid, Giannis, that's kind of their own generation. But in terms of like the American development system, we're still waiting for that super duper star. We thought it was going to be Zion. John Morant had a lot of people's hopes up. He could still potentially get to that level. A lot of people are crowning Anthony Edwards as that next guy. But um, it's been a gap, you know, it's been a longer gap than we expect. And of course, trying to have, hold somebody up to a LeBron standard, it's pretty tricky, you know, or holding up to a Michael Jordan standard, it's pretty tricky, but basketball history says you get one of those kinds of guys, you know, typically every 15 to 20 years, especially from the American development system. And we had three great ones, almost back to back to back with, uh, LeBron, KD and Steph. And it's been a little bit of a wait. 
Do you think it's just pure luck that hasn't panned out? Like you're going to have a generational talent or two that don't pan out or don't pan out immediately in the way that you expect them to? Or do you think that there's some kind of actual deficiency in the way that America produces top level basketball talent? Well, look, it's it's a really complicated thing. I think most people would just say, oh, the AAU system is broken. It doesn't teach the right fundamentals. I don't think it's quite that simple. I do think that you can become so rich, so young, that it can change your motivation standard these days, especially with whether it's NIL deals in high school and college kind of coming up. You know, with Michael Jordan, I mean, he had to wait until he got to the NBA to actually be rich, which meant he had to push and push and push and push all through his college years to kind of improve himself as a player without really getting a major financial reward for it. LeBron, I mean, he was kind of the next evolution of that where he's getting paid essentially on draft night, this massive Nike contract that's going to make him set for life. But he was able to stay focused and he wanted to continue working on his game. And I think what we're learning is like, if you want to get on those guys level, basically you can never stop the self-improvement process. You've got to keep going and going and going. And imagine how difficult that would be as if you're a 16-year-old and you're already a millionaire, right? You see this story down in San Diego with Mikey Williams. You know, he's signing shoe deals and uh, he's one of the biggest NIL guys, it seems like. And he winds up, there's a gun charge, you know, and and is he even going to be eligible to play college basketball? Will he even make it to the NBA, right? Um, I think the the money aspect of it is huge because it's so hard to stay focused and stay locked in on self-improvement when you're getting the rewards so early in your life. And so you're able to kind of pursue whatever you want to do to say nothing of the fact that when you're 18 years old and you make it to the NBA, you might be able to sign a nine-figure sneaker deal like Zion. Does Zion ever have to really work a day in his life again? No, he's set for life already, right? It's all about his own internal motivation, you know, deciding whether or not he wants to do that. And then same thing goes when you get that second contract in the NBA. Now you could sign a $200 million contract when you're 23 or 24 years old. It's fully guaranteed. Is that going to be an impediment to you wanting to improve from the age of, say, 23, 24 until you really hit your prime in your late 20s? It could be. I mean, a lot of guys, even DeAndre Ayton, a number one NBA draft pick, people asked him, what's your goal coming into the pre-draft process before he got drafted? And he says, I just want to get that second contract. I appreciate his honesty, but if I'm a GM, that's a red flag. If you're, re- if you're uh, you know, the finish line for you is securing a contract after your fourth season in the NBA, I don't know if that's going to translate to championships. I don't know if that's going to translate to a 15-year run of dominance like we saw from a Shaquille O'Neal or a Dwight Howard or some of these other centers. It's tricky business, man. You throw that much money at anybody, it can get challenging. And it's not just about basketball. You know, Naomi Osaka in tennis, one of the biggest stars in the world, right? You know, she has she just has this flash of glory very early in her career. And now it's about, okay, well, I'm advertising for five or six different companies. I want to have a relationship, uh, you know, and and have a child and and do other things with my life. And that's maybe a different path that we come to expect from previous generations where the sole focus was sport and becoming a great and sort of like the Tiger Woods model of chasing Jack Nicklaus and devoting your entire life to trying to be the greatest who's ever done it. Um, The modern athletes, there's just so much more things that are available to them, whether it's entertainment, social media being in movies, music, everything else along the way. It's, you know, I don't know if you want to call them distractions because they probably don't view them as distractions, but certainly there's different avenues for them to pursue that might take them away from a sole focus on sports. It's a really 
fascinating dynamic. And I'm glad that we're talking about this because I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. I used to cover combat sports. Like I was, I was a journalist and I covered mixed martial arts and boxing. And so I, I got to meet a lot of really, really great fighters. And there's a saying among fighters that, you know, when they get rich, do you want to get up at five in the morning to do your road work? Do you want to go run 12 miles at five in the morning when you've got a couple million dollars in the bank or many millions of dollars in the bank? Like you can be out all hours of the night doing whatever it is that stars do in the middle of the night. Do you really want to put in that kind of work to continue to be great or to continue to get better? And that's a big ask. I mean, it sounds fairly simple, right? Oh, you just do the work. You know, you just you stay focused. But that is in its own way, a more difficult thing to find the kind of mindset and dedication to improving at your craft. That's probably harder to find than the physical talent to do it. There's lots of people who are physically talented, but not that many people who are willing to do that kind of stuff, even when they don't technically have to, to live. Absolutely. I mean, look at what Giannis's body looked like when he came into the NBA versus what he looks like today. And I think that he probably represents the spirit of continual improvement better than anyone. That's been a mantra of mine in terms of uh, analyzing players for a long time, guys who don't want to settle, guys who are always trying to add different layers to their game as being a particular sign of greatness. And, you know, if you're trying to make long-term bets on young players, guys who have that at the front of their mind, to me, it's a huge gold star. Um, So, yeah, I I think Giannis probably exemplifies that better than anyone. If you look at his career track record, like he starts off, he's not a starter when he comes to the NBA. Then he starts, then he becomes the most improved player. Then he's an all-star player. Then he's an all-NBA player. Then he's an NBA champion. Then he's a finals MVP. It's like this perfect graph, like upward for the first seven years of his career. And had any of those seasons passed without him making gradual improvements along the way, he never would have won the title in 2021. Like he needed every single one of those steps to get there. So, you know, usually a lot of that stuff happens earlier in life, you know, but uh, I think he came a little bit later to the sport than some people. Obviously he didn't really have professional level or even college level coaching um, earlier in his life. And he was even dealing with things like malnutrition when he was growing up in Greece, which probably set him back a little bit. But you want to see players typically making that steady growth from right around age 13, 14, when people really take basketball seriously, up through 21, 22, 23. If you're making major progress year after year during that time period, you're going to be on the right track as a basketball player. Okay, so I, I want to switch gears a little bit. And like clearly, you love basketball. I love basketball. We could talk about this stuff all day. Were you a fan from the very beginning? You mentioned before we started talking, you didn't play basketball in high school. You played soccer. Were you always a fan of basketball? I mean, I feel like growing up in the Pacific Northwest in the 90s, it's really easy to be a basketball fan. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I was, uh, like I said, my dad went to Michigan State, so he's a huge Magic Johnson fan. So he's he's given me the Magic Johnson, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar type lectures um, very early on in life. And it wasn't necessarily about, oh, Lakers and Showtime and all that, because being up in Oregon, the Lakers were the bad guy, right? But it was more about, here's how you play the right way. Here's the virtues you can kind of get for basketball. And these are dad type topics, right? It's like, you know, pass the ball. Magic passes the ball. Look how much fun it is. I mean, that old cliche is like one person's happy if they score, but two people are happy if you make an assist, right? The person who passes it and the guy who gets to score. Um, that was definitely something he was telling me from a very early age. And he played center in, on his high school team in kind of smaller town, Western Michigan. And his biggest gripe was that the guards wouldn't keep him involved, right? It's like, uh, he's the tallest guy on the court, get, feed him the basketball. If he's running the court, make sure he touches it, right? And so those were the kinds of lessons I was getting early on. It was I had hard access uh, to to get to you know a lot of NBA stuff when I was a kid because 
Um, you know, we didn't pay for cable. I was kind of a little bit sheltered. My parents were real focused on academics and trying to live a balanced life and going outside and touching grass and not just <laughs> sitting on the uh, TV and the, the video games all day. But, you know, the, the Blazers were a big deal locally, as you know, in the Portland area. But the distinction I draw is I, I grew up and was raised in Beaverton, and Beaverton's known as the home of Nike. So I was getting the swoosh propaganda pumped into my bloodstream from a very, very early age. So one of my favorite memories is my dad actually took me to a Nike shareholder meeting when I was in middle school. So I had a sick note. And instead of, you know, playing hooky, I was, you know, going to uh, the Nike annual meeting where Michael Johnson, the track star and a whole bunch of NBA guys were showing off new shoes and just kind of like, you know, addressing people about the state of the, the Nike union. And for that reason, like Michael Jordan was a god to me, you know, when I was a kid. I mean, I think that I was right, you know, not a coincidence. Maybe it was a coincidence, but I was born the same year the Air Jordans were born, right? So you can look through our family photo albums and I could see the Jordan 8s on my feet. So I'm like, well, I was eight years old in that photo, right? Or you fast forward, you know, to the, the famous Jordan 11s with the patent leather. I was 11 years old, you know, playing middle school AAU basketball when I had those sneakers. So uh, it was all about Jordan. I, I liked the Blazers, respected the Blazers, but you know it, it became this huge trend to be a fan of players here over the last 10 or 15, 20 years, especially as the players change teams more often, as opposed to being a fan of a team. And for me, you know, growing up as a kid, I wouldn't even say that I was a Bulls fan. I would just say that I was a Michael Jordan fan. And you know, some people in Portland look at me like a traitor, but you know, I got to see MJ come play the Blazers in 1996 during the 72 game, uh, win season. You know, it's greatest team of all time until that that Warriors group came along, and you know, I was wearing an MJ jersey. You know, at that game, and it paid off because the last seconds of the game, MJ strips Arvidas Sabonis with the steal, takes it down for an uncontested dunk to put the win away. I mean, what an unbelievable example of that two-way play that Zion Williamson's mom was lecturing him about, right? But it was like just a picture-perfect moment, and you're just watching this guy who you've kind of held up on a pedestal your entire childhood doing it on that night, just like he did it almost every single night, traveling around the world as part of the circus Chicago Bulls team. So that was really what I was raised on. I was a diehard basketball fan. I collected basketball cards my entire childhood. You know, we would get the the France bread loafs that would have the basketball cards in them. You might remember those, you know, oh, Terry yeah. Porter and Buck mm-hmm. Williams and Cliff Robinson and all those Blazers greats, Danny Young, Robert Pack, those kinds of guys. So it was really always basketball for me. And then soccer was just kind of the sport that I played. But I, I would say I was a bigger basketball fan than, than anything else. And really, it was just kind of a Michael Jordan stand, to be honest. Uh, I think that... Uh, not alone on that regard. I know there's a whole generation of us. I mean, I think that's especially for people who fall into like a three to four year age group, especially if you were born between like, I would say 82 and 86. Michael Jordan is just an absolute God. If you're a little bit older than that, then you knew basketball before Michael Jordan. If you're a little bit younger than that, then you don't remember Michael Jordan in his prime. But that particular age group, which happens to be demographically an enormous one, like there were a a huge number of kids who were born between about 82 and 86. It's like a little generational bulge right there. So like there's a huge number of people for whom that was the experience. Like I got to see Michael Jordan beat two teams that I loved. I got to see him beat the Blazers and I got to see him beat the Sonics. And I still couldn't even be that mad about it. He's, he's MJ, man. Like, what are you going to do? You could be mad about Michael Jordan being the greatest of all time. Like, how can you be mad? Yeah. And people need to understand, like, it's not just the sneakers, right? He's pitching burgers. He's pitching sports drinks, soda, whatever else. I mean, I remember having the Michael Jordan Valentines, you know, going to school and handing out the Michael Jordan Valentines oh, yeah. to every, every kid in the class. It was like, it was such an immersive experience at that time. Like the marketers knew, 
that what they were sitting on with Michael Jordan. And if you were interested in Michael Jordan, you could have a six foot cardboard cutout, which we did have around the dream team era. You could have that in your playroom. You could have a Michael Jordan basketball hoop. You could have a Michael Jordan basketball. You go to the Chicago O'Hare airport There'd be Michael Jordan cologne, Michael Jordan golf. I remember being not quite a teenager, probably like 11 or 12, and thinking like cologne was like off limits. Like it was something that like I wasn't allowed to have because it was for adults or something like that, you know, and just wanting the Michael Jordan cologne so badly. I mean, how pathetic is that, right? But this was the experience that we were going through as kids. And, uh, you know, it it sticks with me to this day. You know, the the name of our podcast, we call it The Greatest of All Talk. And, you know, the GOAT. And that's, you know, it's a nod to Jordan because I, I think that so many people who are diehard basketball fans right around our same age, they owe it to one guy. You know, I don't think it's really complicated. You know, if he doesn't come along, I would imagine my fandom would probably be at least 20, 30, 40 percent less than it was. And I think that's the case for an awful lot of people. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he transcended basketball. He transcended pop culture. Like you could not have a figure like Michael Jordan today. Like he was a product of a very particular era of kind of limited saturation. Like there were only so many paths that you could go down to be incredibly famous. And Jordan was famous in all of those simultaneously in a way that like now is you're just never going to get the same kind of thing. So how do you, how did you go from being a huge basketball fan, huge MJ fan to working in basketball. Like, did you know you wanted to cover basketball? Did you fall into it? Like, what was that path? So I always kind of describe myself as like the Forrest Gump of the industry. Like I just (laughs) randomly show up and things happen to me. And I'm like kind of the luckiest, most fortunate person. You know, you'd think I would have this big master plan. Like when I was growing up, um, writing was sort of like one of my main skills. I, I was, you know, I would test really well in writing. My mom actually hired me a, a writing tutor when I was, I want to say like fourth or fifth grade to just help me work on it because she felt like I had a skill in it as well. And I really enjoyed it. And I really loved basketball. And yet at no point until I was 24 or 25 years old, did I think maybe you should write about basketball? Like I never put two and two together. It's just unbelievable. And it's a lightning strike moment because I was working a uh, an office job as a marketer in Tigard, Oregon, just outside Portland. And I had come back from college, graduated about a year or two earlier and was kind of drifting around, not sure what I wanted to do. And the Portland Trailblazers win the number one pick in the 2007 NBA draft. And I run home from the work And I'm like, oh my God, this is it. I got to do this. And I start a Blogspot blog, if you can believe it, called draftkevindurant.blogspot.com. And my whole goal was to try to convince the Blazers to take Kevin Durant because I was convinced he was going to change the entire franchise, lift them out of this very difficult period they'd been in, and kind of just transform the entire city of Portland. And a lot of my arguments were... You know, don't try to just take the big guy. Taking the big guy screwed you up when you took Sam Bowie over uh, Michael Jordan back in the day. Kevin Durant, he might not be the next Michael Jordan, but he's going to be a franchise changer. And I I wound up writing like a 25-page college term paper style story. And this was all to just try to build buzz and get attention before social media really existed. I was pulling out every stop I could think of to just try to build this up as a movement And, um, you know, I was called, you know, an idiot. You know, the conventional wisdom was you take Greg Oden. They actually had something in the newspaper they had written about me in Portland. And they got a letter to the editor which said, even the Geico cavemen know that you should take Greg Oden over Kevin Durant. So I've got that framed in my office just like perfect. You know, it's just so funny. And, of course, being young and dumb and having no experience in sports writing whatsoever – I was completely convinced they were going to listen to me. So I watched the NBA draft 
the Blazers take Odin, and it was like the closest I've come to crying, just like full-blown crying as an adult. I just put my head on the desk, you know, and I remember I was at, not on a desk, a table. I was at a, a restaurant in Tigard, so convinced it was going to be this crowning achievement, and it went the other direction. So I had my first like mid-career crisis one month <laughs> into my writing career. And I'm like, well, what do I do? They didn't take Kevin Durant. Like, I don't really want to watch Greg Oden. I'm excited that they got Greg Oden. It's better than not having him. Certainly, I'm paying all this money for season tickets to go watch, like, Travis Outlaw and these other guys who just barely can play. So, like, this is a, a big infusion of talent. And I actually sent out a whole bunch of emails to people saying, like, what do I do? Like, I had a lot of buzz off this little website. You know, it got a lot of attention from national sports sites. And like I said, it got written up in the local paper. But I can't just keep this going because I just look like an idiot. They didn't listen to me, right? And, you know, people encouraged me, hey, see if you could try to find some website that'll get you a credential. If you're really interested in this, reach out to local writers of the paper, see if you can job shadow them, just like kind of get your foot in the door. And there was another number of people who were pretty generous with their time that helped me along those lines. And I wound up getting hooked up with Blazer's Edge, which was a pretty popular Blazer's blog. At that time, teams were just beginning to consider, should we let online websites cover the games into the locker room and so forth? And I was so lucky the Portland Trail Blazers took a chance on me. I covered my first game on a credential in December 2007. And that's how I got in. And it just kind of one thing led to another. I just basically devoted my whole life to this thing. I was moonlighting for a couple of years off the top. And uh, from there, I was able to get a job with CBS Sports because LeBron had the decision in 2010. Everybody wants to start covering the NBA free agency. So I was able to kind of get a job riding that wave. And a couple of years later, was at Sports Illustrated. And then about five years ago, I got hired at the Washington Post to be their national NBA writer. So to me, it's just this crazy journey. I went from being the ultimate outsider with no, I've never taken a journalism class in my entire life to now working at what I would consider one of the prestige journalism outlets in the world, being more of an insider, like a guy who's supposed to be there at the big NBA moments up close and personal telling you what it looks like. So um, I never could have planned it this way. And I like to be very honest about my humble beginnings because I hope that people who have a passion for whether it's media or sports or whatever it might be could like listen to that story and say, well, it's not impossible. Maybe I can't do it the exact same way that it worked out for for me. Uh, but you know, if you put your mind to it, grind it out, you, you become an expert at something and you really dive in head first, good things can happen. Yeah. That strikes me as the the really core thing. Like having having watched your work for a lot of years. I mean, like I've like I've read your stuff and I've listened to your podcasts. You care about the craft of understanding basketball as a game, understanding basketball as a business, and understanding how specifically to communicate that to an audience, which are three distinctly separate skills, right? Like there are people who are great at one, but can't do the others. And you have carved out a great niche for yourself by understanding each of those things and by understanding how to communicate them. It's an admirable thing. You don't see that that often. So, Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I would just attribute that to my untraditional path, right? So I'm a basketball fan, first of all. So it's not like I was a random writer in a newsroom and they said, hey, you've got to cover basketball. It's like I sought basketball out. So that's my passion. So I'm locked in and I think I'm going to be communicating with a lot of basketball fans on a level where, you know, it's clear that we share that passion. I also think doing a creative writing degree in college, which is what I wound up doing, that took me out of the I wouldn't say narrow minded. That's too strong. But the traditional journalistic approach, which is you know, not a ton of voice, more just the facts, really a, a focus on unbiased kind of commentary. 
And obviously, I want to be as factual as possible in all my stories, and I become this just gigantic stickler about fact checks because you go through the magazine story fact check process at Sports Illustrated, and like it just sticks with you forever. Um, but I do think I can, you know, have voice or I can write columns uh, in a way that maybe aren't just the tried and true journalistic approach. And so I think that maybe helps as well on podcasts where I'm not as afraid to show my personality because it was sort of always coached into me. Like when you're doing fiction, poetry. Uh, nonfiction type writing in college, like you better have a voice or everyone's just going to roast you out of the room for being boring, right? Like you better have a take. If you don't have a take on whatever you're writing, why is anyone going to care? And they're going to be blunt and honest about that in those writing seminar programs. It's a a cutthroat type of place. So no better preparation, I think, for the online comments and for uh, (laughs) podcast feedback than to go through one of those undergraduate writing seminars type programs. So I think that's some of the reason why what you described was able to kind of come through in my work uh, is just because I have a different background than a lot of people. So funnily enough, one of the first guests on the show was a, an MMA journalist who I've known for a long time, and he has a creative writing background. He writes fiction. Um, another guest is another MMA writer. He and I were colleagues for a long time. He's written two novels. And it, it's funny that like if you came up doing sports media in the late aughts and in the the tens, I guess, if that's what we're calling that decade now, hard to say, um, like that was the death of kind of old school journalism, right? Like it was the death of the old school beat writer who's going around and writing recaps. There was not a market for that anymore. There was a market for people who had takes and for people who could inject life into what would have been formerly fairly mundane kinds of pieces, like workmanlike kinds of pieces. So I, I think that's a fairly common narrative that I've heard. I mean, that's how I got my first journalism jobs was just like you write something that a beat writer isn't going to write because you have to find a way to differentiate yourself. And that was how a lot of people who got jobs in that period of time did it. I think there's a lot of commonalities there. Yeah, you know, people give Bill Simmons a credit for a lot of that. He deserves it. You know, I think he kind of ushered in a lot of that, um, that shift in tone, the preference towards longer, more in-depth, more expansive, more creative, more edgy type pieces. So I, I think he's kind of the godfather of that whole movement. You know, I'm a little touchy, though, about the idea of the death of the Gabe story, though. I know that's been flowing out there for sure. But, you know, I, I, like I would just challenge anybody, you know, read the Washington Post sports section. Like our beat writers um, are unbelievable and not just the ones for the teams. But like we have national beat writers who are at these big games who are trying to capture the big moments like Chuck Culpepper is at Ohio State, Notre Dame. It's like you're not going to read anybody else doing it better than Chuck Culpepper. You might have watched the entire game. You might have you know, tweeted with your friends through the whole thing, texted with your buddies or whatever. But he's going to give you something extra that you don't get. And you know, so I would say they're not dead. I, I wouldn't even say that the death has been greatly exaggerated. I think it, it's probably true to a degree. But there are still people who are holding the flame. And I consider myself one of those people. You know, When I go to the NBA Finals, I want to write a story when Steph Curry just punks the Boston Celtics at Gabe Six on the parquet floor to clinch his fourth title, and he's putting his ring finger up to the crowd with 18 minutes to go in the game. I want to make sure that my story on that game and and to cap that season is rich enough in detail and color that if you want to go back and read that story 10 years from now and know what it was like to be in that building— I know there's not as many people who are doing that story as there used to be, but hopefully you could find at least one that's worth your time. And I, I take that part very seriously from the craft because going back to the Forrest Gump thing, like it's like winning a lottery ticket, getting to go to these games for free, at least for somebody like me. I could never imagine. I've been to every single NBA Finals since 2011. I got to do the Tokyo Olympics, got to live in the bubble for 93 days. 
Um, I mean, these are things that like so many basketball fans would kill for. And so I, I feel like a burden and a responsibility. Like when I'm sitting there typing that up, I want to make sure that every person out there who loves basketball is getting a comprehensive, thoughtful, nuanced, passionate rundown of what's taking place in that building because basketball fans deserve it. And because I kind of owe it to them because I'm getting this chance. I mean, that's the craft, right? It is hard to do that well. And especially in an age where lots of media outlets are producing content, they're not producing stories. They're not producing things that are meant to stand the test of time. They are pumping stuff out for people to click on it, watch it, whatever, because that's the nature of the online economy that they're relying on. The idea of producing a game recap that stands the test of time, like that's what strikes me as a lost art. Like that. Oh, it is. It's just not a priority for a lot of people. There's no question. A lot of outlets, you know, they, they don't even do them. Which is sad. I have a lot of respect for that. And learning to do that, um, learning how to recap sporting events made me such a better writer for the other stuff that I do because it taught me how to work on deadline. It taught me how to distill a lot of stuff down to a couple of striking images or passages. Like there was a lot of a learning process that went into that that has been broadly applicable to other writing. And learning how to do it with an economy of prose because your readers aren't going to sit through 3,000 words on this thing. Learning how to do that was incredibly valuable. And I think that not having that experience for a generation of people who are now writing about sports, like you can see it in their work sometimes. Yeah, or you just see that they don't do that particular type of work. And some people might now instead do like a live reaction podcast right after the game is over. And that's its own craft, its own art. I don't consider necessarily one better than the other. I just have a soft spot for the type of game stories that I read when I was a kid that got me excited about wanting to go to games, right? Wanting to be in the building, wanting to watch more games on TV. You know, I remember the first time I got cable when I was in college because, you know, we, we never had it when I was a kid. And I was like, oh my God, like, you know, and finding out what NBA League Pass was, it's like, this is nuts, right? This is wild. <laughs> so, I mean, those kinds of feelings is, is what I'm trying to tap into. But I think in general, it's really important to be as versatile as possible. Like, you know, I gave you my career arc a little bit, but like I started online, then I go to a magazine, then I go to a newspaper. Most people would probably go the other way, right? But then at the same time, I was dipping my toes into the podcast, you know, as far back more than 10 years ago. It was like the first podcast that I did with uh, Kevin Pelton, who writes at ESPN. And that was before I think he was even at ESPN. And, you know, I kind of was on and off with podcasts for a while along the way. But clearly that has become a growing medium. It's a great way to express behind the scene tidbits if you're on the scene. You know, I love being able to do that for people, having the ability to travel from big playoff game to big playoff game and just tell people what the mood is like in the building and what did I see, you know, for for like Dylan Brooks. You know, he's running out of the Staples Center or the the Crypto.com arena after all that trash talk with LeBron blew up in his face. So paint that scene for people on a podcast. And I, I get a great kick out of that. I love the interaction with podcast listeners who are kind of, you know, following every step of the journey throughout a season. And so to me, they can work in tandem. And I just feel lucky to be able to kind of do both. I would not want to have to pick one. And I think there has been a trend of people and maybe that some of somewhat of what you were describing earlier, where they're seeing certain things like the game story die. So they're looking for new outlets, audio, video type mediums to sort of fill that void. And for me, I'm trying to straddle both for as long as possible. So your love for basketball comes through really clearly. Do you ever find it hard to keep that up? I mean, you live and breathe basketball. Like, do you ever get tired of it? Or is it still fun for you on a random night, even if you don't have an assignment to to turn on a game and watch? 
I don't really get burned out off of basketball. I can't explain why. You know, I think the, the hardest time for me actually was when I put too much projects on myself. Like I was writing a book, trying to promote the book, doing three or four different podcasts while writing about the playoffs and traveling around the country. And at that point, it wasn't that I was burned off with the basketball. I was just burned out with the workload, you know, that was kind of like going with it. And so I had to make some adjustments a couple of years ago to make sure, you know, LeBron would say, keep the main thing, the main thing, right? Like watching basketball and writing about it for me is the main thing. And so I had to kind of strip out some other commitments that I had made so that I could kind of get back to focusing on that and making sure I had some balance in my life. But, you know, I've been having a good time picking up some of the WNBA games, picking up a women's college basketball, especially because of Caitlin Clark. I don't watch a ton of NCAA basketball, but during the tournament, I'll, I'll, I'll pick up and write some stories on college basketball. And I get into the high school basketball too. I love seeing who's the next great thing, right? Like it goes back to the idea of draft Kevin Durant being really excited about a young teenage prospect. So that part of it is always really interesting to me. So I don't get a, a ton of burnout. I think the one thing that does bother me, though, is if I'm like here in L.A., if I got stuck watching a team that's clearly going nowhere, like the Lakers with Russell Westbrook, it's really hard for me to get up to watch a team that I know has no ceiling or a team that's not living up to its potential or a team that's not doing things the right way. And so when they make that trade for Westbrook and get all those pieces down the deadline, not only did it energize the entire arena, right? It energized the players, it energized LeBron. They make that great run to the Western Conference Finals before Denver smoked them, right? But it was a totally different vibe. And I'll be honest, like I felt the same emotional swing, right? It's like you're just kind of drudging through some of these games where on a team that you know that's not going anywhere. And here there's a lifeline. They shake things up. The chemistry is better. And now you're excited again. So those kinds of things can happen for sure. Uh, But when you're talking about flying 50, 60 flights a year to go from game to game, some of those days are long and really tough. And you're getting stuck in like weather delays and ground stops at airports. And that kind of stuff can be annoying. But the payoff never gets like lessened, you know, like being able to watch game two of the NBA finals, knowing I'm there, it it doesn't go away. You know, people would say, oh, the first one's the best. First finals is the most memorable. Sure. But every single one along the way has been awesome. You know, I can tell you great stories from any of the finals from the last 12 or 13 years. Okay. So pick a random one and tell me a fun story. One of my favorites is, uh, do you remember the cramp game? Uh, between the San Antonio Spurs and the Miami Heat. So San Antonio is getting alleged to have cut off the air conditioning uh, during the NBA Finals because they're trying to, supposedly the conspiracy theory goes, being down in South Texas, they're more accustomed to the heat and maybe somehow Miami Heat, they don't have as much depth or whatever, they're going to be thrown off. LeBron and D-Wade and and Chris Bosh, the Heatles, won't be able to handle the, the lack of air conditioning. And I remember watching on Twitter as everybody's kind of putting two and two together and they're mentioning it on the broadcast. So fans are tweeting about it. And I remember looking over to the guy next to me and he's wearing a full suit, uh, like not sweating. And he's like, does it feel a little hot in here to me? Like he's just completely (laughs) clueless at this entire storyline's going on because we're just in the building. And so that's just like cracking me up because I'm like, yeah, dude, it's like apparently like 80 plus degrees in here. I'm, I'm sweating bullets. I'm not feeling great about it. And so obviously LeBron gets the cramps at the end of the game. It just becomes this massive story. So my job that night is to camp out in this cramped road locker room in San Antonio for LeBron to come out. There's so many people in there. And this is like the kind of thing like post-COVID. Oh, man, it it sounds so much worse, right? But it's just bodies pressed on bodies. And I actually have a cameraman 
who's on a step stool because he's got the television camera, so he needs to have an angle above all the reporters. So he's standing on this step stool uh, waiting for LeBron to come out, and we're waiting and waiting and waiting. I want to say we're waiting an hour, and again, it's this cramped little locker room. There's no AC. They never turn the AC back on, so it's a sweat box. You know, I'm telling you, I'm sweating. Like, I feel gross. You know, I'm ready to take a shower, and LeBron never comes out. You know, so that's like the disappointment of it. But as we're there, I'm kind of crouching down below this guy on this stool and he starts sweating and just drop of sweat, drop of sweat, <laughs> drops down from oh him, God. from his forehead, his face down onto my head. So it's like raining one droplet at a time of his sweat onto oh my, my head God. and there's nowhere, nowhere for me to go, right? And so this is what I mean. It's like if you could survive that, which I'm sure sounds like absolute madness to uh, any of your listeners, and come away with a smile on your face. And even though we didn't get the story, all we got was like a three-sentence statement from the Heat saying, oh, he's going to be reevaluated. Status for game two is uncertain, right? You know, if you could survive that and still love the sport, then I think you're in a good place. And and that for me was one of those moments where it was like, man, this is what I signed up for. Am I sure I want to do this? And I was like, yeah, I do. This is great. For all the benefits, you are occasionally going to wind up in a secondary swamp ass splash zone. Like that's part of the gig. That's incredible. I do remember that game. I love that game. Great finals. The Spurs Heat finals were just some of my favorites of the last couple of decades in so many different ways. Underappreciated players, players who were desperately trying to win at the end of their career, like Ray Allen going to the Heat, leaving the Celtics behind, hitting that game winning shot. Those teams were really fun. And the fact that they were both really fun at the same time was a pretty special thing, I think, for basketball. And it's easy to miss that because of how dominant the Warriors got afterward, that there was just this one little tucked in era where the Spurs and the Heat were both great for entirely different reasons, with entirely different styles of play and entirely different personalities. Oh, and yeah, totally different headlining superstars, right? LeBron and Tim Duncan could not be more different. And people forget that Tim Duncan guaranteed victory going into that finals. It was like the least Tim Duncan thing ever. (laughs) But walking off the court in the Western Conference finals, he said, we're going to get our revenge against the Miami Heat after they blew it in 2013. And sure enough, Duncan and the rest of the Spurs delivered. It was pretty commanding performance in that series. I love that 2014 um, title team. You know, another story from that year, probably the best title celebration that I've happened to stumble into I go because I'm staying downtown by the Alamo, and that's where everybody wants to go when they win the championship, right? So I'm barely getting through all this traffic to kind of get back to my hotel room, and I'm thinking, oh, I've got a smartphone. You know, I might as well, um, you know, go and see what's happening and, and capture some scenes from this just incredibly ecstatic crowd because they hadn't won in a few years, but they have really diehard fans down there in San Antonio because they had won so many titles during the Popovich years, and that wound up being, I think, the fifth of five that they won. And I just will never forget the sight of a little person standing on top of a car, wearing a diaper, sure, unknown reasons, just dressed up by his family, probably for comedic relief. Uh, he was an adult, possibly drunk, standing on top of a moving car as they're driving through traffic. And on the side of the car, they had spray painted the phrase, and this is, it's not, it's profane in Spanish, but puro... Uh, Puro pinche Spurs, which I think it means like F yeah Spurs, if I'm doing the uh, translation correctly. They had spray painted that on the side of their own car with a little person standing on top in a diaper as the car is moving, just ecstatically cheering. Like this is the happiest moment of their life. And I'm sitting there saying like, is this a simulation? I mean, <laughs> is, this, is this real life? 
what is like am i an nbc like npc or whatever they say like none of this is making sense right now and i remember getting a video or a, a picture of that and like Texas Monthly or Texas Weekly or whatever the big Twitter account down there picked it up and it just went absolutely crazy. And everybody in Houston and Dallas was kind of saying, oh yeah, this is what San Antonio is like. So I stoked some real inner Texas rivalries with this content, <laughs> completely unbeknownst to me. I just thought it was like, I couldn't believe what was happening. But these are the kinds of scenes you get, man, when you uh, when you got boots on the ground. Again, in an era where like there's less of that, there's less traveling to games, there's less following teams around, like you really do miss something. You miss the kind of fabric of local sports fandom. And especially with the Spurs, a small market team that have had a lot of success. I mean, they occupy a really special place in the community. Um, speaking of special places in the community and also teams that have for a long time been going nowhere, the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, yes, sir. So by the time this episode goes out, I would imagine that the Damian Lillard situation, he dem- asked for a trade, uh, will probably have resolved itself. What is it about the NBA in the present day that gives stars the leeway to do that? Not, not to put a value judgment on it, but what is it about the dynamics of the sport, the institutional arrangements that makes that a possibility? Well, I would just say that a permission structure has developed and really furthered over the last 15 years that has kind of created this phenomenon where guys are just leaving pretty much at the drop of a hat. If you haven't seen it yet, go back and watch this new Showtime documentary called Goliath, which is about Wilt Chamberlain. It lays out how he pushed his way from Philadelphia to Los Angeles. And you realize that the same basic playbook that he used 50 years ago is still the playbook that modern superstars are using. Wilt was so far ahead of his time. Kareem followed a very similar playbook. You can go right down the list of uh, major Shaq had a similar playbook, although his was a little bit different because Orlando was balking at paying him all the money. But there's it's it's not a new phenomenon in the NBA. What has changed, though, is I would say the volume of players who are getting in on the action And a lot of that is just copycat syndrome. LeBron kind of created it in 2010 where he said, I'm just going to go take my talents to South Beach. I'm going to break up with the Cavs on national television. Tough break. Once LeBron's done it, anybody who's less famous than LeBron can do the same thing and face less repercussions, right? And every additional player that goes down this path makes it easier, like I said, with the permission structure for the next guy to do it. And so... First, it was Anthony Davis asking for a trade with a year and a half left on his contract, right? Not too long after that, guys are doing it with two years left on their contract. Not too long after that, Kevin Durant's asking for a trade before his four-year contract extension has even started, right? Like he hasn't even played a day on his new deal and he wants out, right? So it's been an evolution, but it's one that's been generations in the making. And it's really unique to basketball because it's a five-player sport and one superstar can basically decide whether you're a contender or not, right? And so when you have that much leverage, when you're that rare of a commodity, when there's only eight to 10 guys who are capable of leading a championship team, those guys are going to wield so much more power than their other 400 colleagues in terms of the other players. And they're going to wield more power than the actual franchises, right? So I think the most frustrating part from a fan perspective is that Tastes for destinations have hardly changed, right? Everybody wants LA. (laughs) Everybody wants Miami. Uh, There's like a few places everybody wants to go to. 
And um, that part gets a little bit redundant, I think, if you're a fan of another franchise. I mean, it's just so predictable. Of course, Damian Lillard wants to go to the Miami Heat because it's South Beach and there's other stars down there and there's great tax incentives and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's annoying when you hear it for the third or fourth time. You know, Jimmy went there and LeBron went there and Chris Bosh went there. And it's like, you know, come up with a new storyline. Right. And I get that part is frustrating, but um, I don't necessarily see it changing anytime soon. And I do think people have largely adapted to it, right? I think you're getting less and less pushback every time it happens. And maybe that's because some fans have just been turned off and tuned out. I think that's very possible. The NBA has just kind of lost some people who thought loyalty to a certain franchise or having a guy who stays like a Dirk Nowitzki or a Stephen Curry for their entire careers. You know, people who put those kinds of players on pedestals are probably more and more tuning out and less interested in what the NBA has to offer. But fans who love one player and just want to follow his journey from franchise to franchise, I don't think that they care nearly as much as they did in 2010. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because it's like, it's not any one thing, right? That makes it possible for this, because this is like the dominant dynamic in understanding why things happen in basketball at this point. Like it isn't any one thing that makes that possible. It's a whole bunch of different things from contract structures to, you know, the way that teams understand and value assets to the kind of culture that players have been raised in and exposed to over the courses of their careers. I'm just fascinated by what makes it possible for that to exist. Like it's a whole bunch of different things. The Wilt part is so funny. Again, this is me getting real dad coded with my basketball enjoyment, but I've been watching a lot of uh, Wilt Chamberlain highlights and old Wilt Chamberlain interviews. And I think he was right. He could have played until he was 50 if he'd wanted to. He probably could have been uh, going out there and getting 10 points and 10 rebounds a game when he was 50. Just a, a specimen of a human being. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. No, and in that Goliath documentary, they have highlights of him, you know, running track and doing high jump and stuff like that when he was a teenager. And he looks like a world class athlete. They have uh, clips of him playing against college players when he was in high school and just absolutely dominating them. I mean, there's some really interesting basketball stuff in that movie, aside from, you know, all the personal life stuff that's going to get people um, interested. So I I do recommend that. But um, yeah, you know, I, I think there are some next boundaries that we could see come up in the NBA, right? Like do guys make so much money off the court that they aren't willing to sign a second contract with the team that drafted them? Or are they willing to try to push their way off of a team that drafts them uh, during their rookie contract so they can get to a better market? Like those are kind of the slippery slope next steps, which would be really bad for the game, right? Like if you imagine Wembenyama after two years in San Antonio, it's just like, you know what? Greg Popovich, great run. Not sure he's still got his fastball. I want to go to the Lakers, right? Are you going to be able to stop Wembenyama from doing that if you're the NBA? Or are the Lakers just going to have to come up with enough trade assets that they can give the Spurs what they want? And Wembenyama just does the same thing that Will Chamberlain and Kareem and Shaq and Dwight Howard and LeBron did before him just earlier in his career. That's the kind of stuff that would scare me if I was the NBA owners because the only way you can have competitive balance and ha- you know small market teams feel like they have a chance is if they're able to draft and develop, sort of like Denver did with Jokic and Jamal Murray. And if those guys are going to get to a spot where they can ask out like after the third or fourth year, instead of being forced to wait typically eight or nine years before you can really move, um, then the entire model gets turned upside down. And then you're just funneling everybody to you know a, a select number of teams. And I think at that point, That would be damaging to the sport, but we should point out we're in a golden era of parity right now in the NBA. We've had a different champion 
every single year since 2018. You know, every year there, there hasn't been a repeat since the Warriors. And if you look at the last 20 years of the NBA, only three teams have repeated Kobe's Lakers, LeBron's Miami Heat, and Steph Curry and Kevin Durant's Golden State Warriors. So it's different than it was in the 80s where, you know, you felt like you only had two teams or the 90s where Mike won every single year that he was healthy, right? So it's it's become a different landscape despite all the superstar movement. And that's kind of one of the takeaways that people don't discuss as much. A lot of these superstars who are coming up with their super team ideas and I'm going to go play on this team, it blows up in their face a lot, right? The I Nets! Mean, James... The yeah. Nets! Oh my God! They what did those guys play together? Kyrie, Harden, and Durant. They played like 11, 12 games together. Oh, totally. I mean, James Harden's blown up in his face <laughs> multiple times, right? And it could blow up again. You know, the the Clippers deal has not worked for them. Uh, you go right down the list uh, of these situations where there's um, cautionary tales that go along with it as well. And I do think some of the fans that are turned off by the superstar movement are getting roped back in because they're rooting for the super teams to fail. And it kind of turns <laughs> these guys into villains a little bit, right? You know, and that could be a way to experience the NBA too. You know, it's, it's kind of the haters ball and I'm okay with that too. I understand why people would be upset if everybody wants to go play. I mean, Harden saying, I want to go home to the Clippers and play with Russell Westbrook, Paul George, and Kawhi Leonard on the same team. And it's like, yeah, it's going to be way easier for people to root against that team than it would be to root for them, right? I mean, Harden in particular is such a is such a fun case because I, I do find myself as I get older, just having irrational dislikes for particular players more than I did when I was younger. When I was younger, I feel like my dislikes were more rational, like they were more rooted in some kind of tribalism. And now there's just players that I don't care for. I don't know why, but I can't stand Rudy Gobert. Uh, maybe it was the him rubbing his hands all over the microphones at the COVID press right. conference and giving everybody COVID thing. But like, can't stand him. Don't care for him. Harden, I understand. Great basketball player. Don't care for him. He is a Hall of Fame gentleman's club enjoyer. And for that, he will go down in history. Uh, but at this point, yeah, like I, I will root against Harden pretty much wherever he goes, even as he enters like the old man phase of his career where he's just dishing incredible assists and can still hit shots and is still good and may, and is actually probably more fun to watch than he was in Houston. Like at this stage in his career, I will still root against him just purely because of all of the stuff around him. I'm going to allow myself to be a hater and enjoy rooting against James Harden. It's less potentially damaging to the fabric of my life than getting a gambling addiction and just deciding that's going to be how I enjoy <laughs> sports. Like just to just allow yourself a little hate as a treat. I think that's become a big deal in the NBA for sure. And it's because the NBA player personalities are so engaging for good or for bad, right? It's like we know more about these NBA stars than we know about the stars in any other sport, right? It's like this Travis Kelsey deal with Taylor Swift. Yeah. This is like the NFL's moment. Oh my God, they haven't had like this celebrity uh, angle to it probably in like 10 years since like Brady and Giselle, right? So um, not that the NBA is just loaded with Taylor Swift's because I got her on very, very high on my personal uh, Mount Rushmore <laughs> musicians, right? But like this Travis Kelsey phenomenon is... is not run of the mill in the NBA, but it's much more common, you know, typically um, in the NBA. And you can even tell, like, they're asking his teammates and coaches about the situation. They're, like, totally unprepared to answer these questions. They're being as boring as possible. In the NBA, everybody would have a take. The players would be tweeting about it, right? Oh, like, yeah. instantly. It'd be, you know, they'd be going live on Instagram to discuss. And so I, I think that, you know, that further is what you're talking about, which is, Heroes, villains, good guys, bad guys, teams that represent the things that you like, teams that have tried to take shortcuts that you don't approve of. I think that's all part of this just general NBA environment right now. 
I mean, to come back all the way back around to what we were talking about at the very beginning, it's part of what makes basketball fun. And it's part of what makes it, frankly, kind of an enjoyable sport for embracing your curmudgeonly side. Like, I think that's hard in the NFL these days. Like, I don't, I, I haven't followed football particularly closely in a long time, in part because I don't have three to six hours on a Sunday. Like, I got to do kid stuff. Like, I can't sit on the couch and just be like a non-present father and husband for many hours at a time. I can sit there and I can watch an hour and a half of a basketball game or like dip in for 20 minutes here and there of an evening when my uh, when my children are asleep or on their way to bed. Like, that's OK. But as that meshes with getting older and having less tolerance for things that I don't like, the NBA is great for that, man. Like, I because I can just pick up and be like, ooh. Got a, got a Sixers game tonight, got Harden on. I can root against Harden. Rooting against Harden while rooting for Embiid is a really fun thing to do watching a Sixers game at this point. <laughs> well, you're going to twist yourself up in pretzels and maybe one of them will get traded or both of them will get traded and yeah. then you're going to be, it's going to be an easier proposition for you, right? Oh, this is going to be like, I will have a lot of fun when and if any of that happens. Like that's going to be a really enjoyable day for me as, a, as an NBA fan. So looking forward to this season, like what seems fun to you? What are you looking out for? Like players, teams, storylines, any of that? Well, being based here in LA, I mean, I think first of all, you have big seasons for both the LA teams. With the Lakers, they're bringing back a group that made it to the Western Conference Finals that is actually going to have some chemistry and continuity for once, and that solved its biggest problem, which was the fit with Westbrook last season, right? So yes, LeBron's old. Thankfully, he didn't quote-unquote retire, right? And yes, Anthony Davis is still going to have the injury issues that he's always had for the last five years. But on paper, this is a group that should be able to compete with just about anybody, and it's going to be a more aesthetically pleasing product. So I'm looking forward to just getting into those Lakers games. They're a a scene or a show, man. It's pretty cool to see, I mean, all the celebrities that line up courtside, all the people who just are diehard basketball fans here in Los Angeles who turn out to these games. When the Lakers are good, there's nothing like it. And I think the Lakers are going to be pretty darn good this year. And it's not something I could necessarily say coming in these last couple seasons just because of the Westbrook factor. With the Clippers, they have a brand new arena opening up next year. So they face a lot of pressure to build momentum going into this just like billion dollar sanctuary that they've created, right? The, the Intuit Dome. So they have to have something to show for themselves. And it's been a really tough run for them, right? So Kawhi Leonard's had all these injury issues. Paul George has had injury issues. They've lost or, or changed their, their uh, supporting cast a couple of times throughout these last couple of years. So it feels a little bit like a make or break type year. One of their key executives, Michael Winger, left to take a job with the Washington Wizards. Ty Lue was apparently trying to potentially explore other opportunities, their coach this summer, but he he winds up being back. So I don't know if you could call this like a last dance for them because I'm not sure they've ever danced. Maybe they're the last <laughs> stumble, something like that. You know, that, that's what they're kind of going for. But it's, you know, a lot of pressure on them. There's going to be a lot of eyeballs on how this thing works for the Clippers. The other thing that I'm looking forward to, we didn't really get to see Kevin Durant in Phoenix because he was injured as soon as he got traded, right? They have mortgaged all in with this group, trading for Bradley Beal, strip mining their bench. This is like the top heaviest, riskiest gamble of any franchise we've got in the NBA right now, right? So they're kind of playing by the old rules of build a big three and then see what happens. And 
it really might not work. I mean, as we said earlier, sometimes it can be fun to root against these experiments. I think a lot of people are going to root against the Suns. And, you know, we'll see if that develops. But I, I want to see what does it look like on paper because it's a new chapter for Kevin Durant. And I'm so glad he got free of all that drama in Brooklyn and kind of get back to just pure basketball in Phoenix. Wembenyama is a massive story in San Antonio. My current plan is to go to four of his first five games in three different cities in the first two weeks of the season. So I'm just like on full-fledged TMZ Wemby alert. You know, that's it's kind of how I, I feel about it. But you know, the way I look at it is, I mean, he is the most hype prospect since LeBron. If LeBron was coming into the NBA this season, I'd want to be at all of his games for the first couple of weeks and just capture that moment for, for history and see how does the acclimation process work. I don't think he's going to be LeBron. That's an impossible standard for any player. But I think he could be a really, really special NBA player for the next 10, 15, 20 years. And let's see what it looks like during those germination stages, right? So I think that's a big story as well. You've got other fun stories. Oklahoma City Thunder are, are bringing back Chet Holmgren. They had a nice season last year. Can they make the leap and kind of be the, the darling team, the league pass darling team that everybody wants to rally around? Uh, the Golden State Warriors aging core, do they have one more deeper postseason run in them? Does Chris Paul fit or does that turn out to be a disaster? I mean, that that's a, a major thing that I think everyone's going to be watching, um, you know, these first couple of months of the season. And then I think the other looming over everything would be the futures of Giannis and Joel Embiid. It's kind of put up or shut up seasons for the Bucks and the Sixers. The Bucks change coaches. The, the Sixers also change coaches and they maybe are going to have to part with James Harden. We don't know. Either way, that's a lot of transition and potentially turmoil for two really big figures in the Eastern Conference. If those guys don't have fulfilling seasons, you know, make deep runs, potentially compete for a title, especially in Milwaukee's case, we could see trade requests. We could see trades next summer. We could just see the landscape altering. So I think those are probably the biggest top-down storylines that I'm looking for heading into this season. Uh, but there's a million more. I mean, I, the, the NBA, it's so rich right now in terms of uh, personalities and storylines. We go on all day. Yeah, I literally could go on all day. I love talking basketball. This is so much fun. Uh, final question that I'll leave you with, and this is purely for my own satisfaction, uh, more of a statement, I guess. God, please tell me that Scoot Henderson is going to make the Blazers good at some point. I'm dying here. I'm dying. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I like Scoot a lot. I was actually able to go to the showcase games between Scoot and Wemby that they held last fall. And that was sort of Wemby's big breakout. He was the headliner. He stole the show. But Scoot did not roll over. Don't forget, Scoot tried to dunk on Wemby's head. And Wemby's about 7'5", <laughs> and he went straight for him. Now, it didn't work out for him, but he tried it. And you got to love the moxie. Um, what I also noticed about him is he loved the moment. Being there on that G League Ignite team, it's easy to go under the radar and just not get the attention. And, you know, I, I had never written a story about the G League Ignite before going out to watch that game against Wemby. So clearly the, the showcase idea worked because it brought me out and exposed me to what they're doing there. It's a very cool program that just it flies under the radar. And Scoot put in two long years of work with that program with very little attention, fanfare. Um, and he was open to the media. He was doing stories anytime anybody asked, but not very many people ask because it's not the prestigious Duke University or Kansas or you know, North Carolina. You know, it's just not that kind of a platform. So I think he's about the right things. He's got an incredible body from a physical standpoint, especially for a young player. The jump shot needs some work, but when he's on, he can really turn it on, and he's fearless going to the hoop. And you want guys who could put pressure on the rim 
these days in the NBA because that sets up your three-point offense, the drive and kick stuff, and it gets you to the foul line. That's how you become a really efficient player. So I like his player archetype a lot. He's got all the charisma and the moxie in the world. He handled the Damian Lillard saga stuff this summer at the pre-draft process in New York. And I asked him a bunch of questions. To be honest, I was pushing him. I was just trying to see how he would react. Handled it perfectly like a pro. I mean, he's a guy where when you play for the G League Ignite for two years, you get professional training on things like media and how to present yourself. And that clearly showed through for him. To me, he looks like a prototypical franchise point guard. I would have way rather had him if I was Portland than Brandon Miller, who went number two to the Charlotte Hornets. So I think you had a real good player fall into your lap. I don't want to compare it to like MJ falling to three, you know, and and Portland taking Bowie at two, but I do feel like we could look back on that draft pick from Charlotte as like Michael Jordan's return gift to the Blazers for not being a Blazer (laughs) himself. His last act as owner of the Charlotte Hornets before he sold the team was to allow Scoot Henderson to fall to Portland. And I think it's it's amazing sometimes how these things can kind of twist and turn together. And I have a feeling that's how it's going to play out. When Brandon Miller was asked in the pre-draft process who his goat was, and he said, Paul George, I'm like, oh no, you can't draft that guy. Like, Paul George can't be your goat. That's an unserious answer. This is not a serious person. I mean, he's had a lot of strange comments. There's no question. I mean, he had some pretty shady behavior at Alabama in terms of the gun incident and was how involved was he? Why doesn't he want to talk about it with NBA teams? All of it to me was just sort of red flags, not to mention he played terribly in the NCAA tournament. Once he got on the big stage, he did whatever the opposite of seizing the moment, blowing the moment, you know, uh, whatever, you know, verb you want to use there. I mean, he just wasn't ready for primetime and those kinds of things would scare me. So I think Portland has handled this Damian Lillard saga, even though it's been ugly. I think they've handled it the right way. Now, obviously, it's going to be determined by what kind of return package they ultimately get. They've got to get a bounty for him. You know, it doesn't have to be as much as the Suns gave up for KD, but it's got to be a lot, right? And if they can do that and rebuild around Scoot Henderson, Shaden Sharp, Simons potentially, and go forward, you're not starting at ground zero, right? You're you're starting at, uh, you know, floor two or three in terms of the rebuild. And it's going to take a couple of years, no question. It always does with teenage point guards, but you're going to be uh, on the right track. That is exactly what I was hoping to hear. That makes me feel so much better. Ben, I could talk to you about basketball all day. I could ask you a bajillion questions, but I cannot thank you enough for your time. This has been such a pleasure chatting with you and thank you for coming on the show. Where is there anything you want to plug? Where can the people find you? Careful now. We'll be here for another half an hour if you let me plug things. <laughs> I would just say, you know, check check out the greatest of all talk NBA podcast. I'm really proud of the work we do on that. We crank out two episodes every week and we have a really good time. Uh, my book, Bubble Ball, you know, it, it talks about the three months I spent in the bubble. I was one of the few writers who was there the whole time. And, you know, I, I try to bring you along in, into what that journey was like and, and have a time capsule feel for um, the NBA during the pandemic and just how close it came to not having a season, all the crazy stops they had to pull out to make sure that they were able to, to bring it together. The shutdown, you never forget, the Bucks don't take the court. I was one of the three writers who was actually there when that happened. So I, I give you a uphand or up, up close and personal view of that as well. And then, of course, WashingtonPost.com slash sports is where all my writing is. Ben, thank you again for your time. Just an absolute pleasure. I've admired your work for a long time, and it was, it's been an honor getting to chat with you about this. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me on, man. It was a great chat, and uh, looking forward to the season as much as you are. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to hit that subscribe button. And if you can, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and a review. It's really helpful. 
You can find me on Instagram at Wyman underscore Patrick and on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman. The producers of The Pursuit of Dadliness are Morgan Jaffe and Leah Sutherland. Until next time, this has been The Pursuit of Dadliness. Take care of yourselves, friends. 